I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. And it's a big honor to be here with my friend David Graeber, who is someone that I've been in dialogue with about democracy, but really about organizing and rabble-rousing and how to make trouble for years now. I'm trying to think how long it's how long been. How it been? At least 2010? Yep. Yeah. You actually, I think, tried to get me to go to some of the planning meetings for Occupy Wall Street. I think I did, Yes, failed. And failed. So let it be known. David invited me to go to some of the planning meetings for Occupy Wall Street, and I was like, no. But I did show up on the first day of Occupy, and this book and this film, I think, are really born of that year, 2011, in the sense that democracy was in the air all over the world. So from the Arab Spring through you know, Occupy Syntagma Square, the movement of the squares. There were, of course, protests here. And all of these movements were united by this call for real democracy, um, even though they were in different, very different, you know, contexts. And so I always had trouble with the chant, this is what democracy looks like. It's not a chant that I've ever been able to like fully throw myself into. I've always had, been, had trouble chanting, but I can do it occasionally. Either because I feel really kind of like, oh, I'm not fully believing it, or I just want to cry, depending on whether I am feeling it. But you know, I'm, in my mind, I would always think, is this what democracy looks like? Or this can't be what democracy looks like because it's too small. You know, I, these, this really is actually just, there's only 10 of us. <laughs> the police are about to arrest us. <laughs> you know, this is, this is definitely not what democracy looks like. You know, I was wrestling with this too, especially as, the movement was making claims about its organizing model and saying this is what democracy is, and there was a lot of um, chaos. But there's also a lot that was really beautiful. At the time, I was also writing a book called The People's Platform. Uh, it's just a sort of political economy of the internet, and it came out in 2014. And so I was debunking, doing a lot of debunking of Silicon Valley's claims to be democratizing everything, which now seems like such old news. But we have to remember that not that long ago, we lived in the age of techno-utopianism. And Silicon Valley was going to save everything. And as I was you know, critiquing these people and their d- invocations of the word democracy, I had to ask, well, what would a more democratic internet look like? And I was also thinking about culture. What, what would cultural democracy look like? 
Um, and as an artist, as a filmmaker, and as an occasional musician, I was wondering that because I don't like all cultural things, you know, and I don't, but I also don't think cultural democracy is whatever is the success of the box office or whatever goes viral. So this word democracy was also, I was wrestling with it um, in that context too. Basically, I think I was also just bored because I was actually, I joined my partner's band and it was, you know, year two of the, year two of the tour. And so I was in the back of the band and was like, I, I'll make a movie about democracy. And I wrote a proposal. But I thought a film, you know, be an interesting way to explore democracy because it invites a polyphony of voices. And I would have this excuse to go out and talk to different people. That said, I, you know, if I flash back even further, maybe 10 years ago, I never would have thought that I would be interested in the word democracy. I actually, I mean, the word democracy to me sounded totally corrupted. It was a word that I associated with neoconservatives, with George W. Bush bringing democracy to Iraq, to Afghanistan. I mean, you know, which makes me think about the situation right now in Syria and Rojava. Um, you know, this, it was a word that just seemed utterly tainted. So I liked words like equality, liberation, communism, socialism, revolution, freedom. You know, any word seemed more exciting and compelling and meaningful than democracy. So that's part of why 2011 was important because it was this moment where I thought, okay, well, hold on. Maybe we're not, gonna, we're not letting this word go. So what, I want to know what I mean when I say it. I want to, to um, at least work through my ambivalence and understand my ambivalence. So I thought that instead of reading, I would just sort of give you a sort of summary, a little bit of the book and what I'm trying to do with it. The film and the book for me are very much intertwined in that I always knew I would make both of them from the start. And that's because they're different but complementary mediums for me. The, I mean, for me, the world of, I, I suppose other people, I do report a bit, but part of the joy of making a book is that, of writing a book is that you get the excuse to do all this research. You get to hang out with your dead friends and read them. You get to be by yourself, which is also great. You know, it's a, it's a sort of private enterprise. You don't need a budget. And you can go down wormholes. You can have footnotes and citations. And, you know, it's, it's a place to work through one's own thoughts. A documentary is a space, as I said, of encounter. And as somebody who's a bit introverted and can stay home and do this reading and writing, it compels me to go out and talk to people I would never talk to and sort of bridge that gap. You know, film is this beautiful medium for showing other humans, so I'm not a very descriptive writer. When I talk about my subjects in the book, you know, I talk about their ideas, what they think, the conditions they're living under. Uh, and in the film, you know, I can show them in all of their humanity and, and capture something that I would never be able to capture on the page. So the book, I also knew that, you know, I would be able to have my piece and sort of say what I want to say in the book, right? So the film is much more an exercise in what I've come to think of as the politics of listening. There's a strong emphasis in democratic theory on deliberation, on speech, especially in the United States, we're obsessed with freedom of speech, and there's no corresponding duty to listen, mm. right? And uh, it's, not, it's seen as very weak, it's seen as very feminine, right? You know, you're in the less powerful position if you're listening. You're, maybe you're just taking orders, you're being told what mm. to do, what to think. And so in the film, I'm trying, you know, I purposefully edit in such a way so that actually I'm always either asking questions or I'm really listening to people intensely. It's not about, I don't edit, you know, I'm the director. I could have edited the film, so I'm just talking the whole time and being clever. Mm -hmm. But 
Instead, I made it so that I'm listening to other people. And for me, this, the film is also a way then of demonstrating what I see as um, a sort of intellectual position of, this is why the question is, for the film, you know, the title is a question, what is democracy? That the intellectual position actually to ask the question and be curious, not necessarily to just know and then tell people what, what it is and think for them. That democracy is this enterprise of thinking together. And so that in the film is all implicit. All I, I'm just demonstrating that by going and talking to people and listening to them. But in the book, I get to say, oh, democracy needs philosophy. They're intertwined from the very beginning because the thing is, democracy is the demos and kratos, right? The people and power rule. But the people is an abstraction. So already at the very beginning, you have to deal with this abstract concept. Who is the people? What are the people? How does this abstract thing make decisions and rule itself? And so already in the beginning, you know, you need philosophy. And I think you need then the people to be a philosophical people. So I'm trying to show in the film and in the book, but I think in the film, you know, I'm really actually trying to do it to treat every single person I meet like they're a philosopher. Mm. Not to say, oh, you're a victim or you're you know, a symbol of something, but what do you think? What is justice? What is meaningful to you? What, what do you want democracy to be? To show everyone is a philosopher. So in that sense, it, it directly invokes and sort of offers a rebuke to Plato right, who said, okay, we should have these philosophical guardians in the Republic, not just philosopher kings, but queens. He, he was, we have to give him sort of gender credit there. Um, <laughs> but to say, well, what if, what if we treat everyone like a philosopher? Because, you know, I think democratic theory, political philosophy of any kind of philosophy should be accessible to people who aren't just experts. So in the film and the book, I'm also trying to demonstrate, I'm trying to challenge the study of who is an expert at democracy. Right? Who is a, pers a person of authority? You know, who is invited to reflect on the Socratic question? How should we live together? You know, who is excluded from that conversation? In service of that mission, Plato is invoked, but then also I talk to 12-year-old girls at inner city middle schools and ask them what they think about how their school is run and what education should be for. You know, that is part of the motivation of doing it. Part of the the thing about the book, too, is it's structured in a way that, you know, is far too abstract for, for a movie, which has to just sort of carry you along and engage you on an emotional level. So the book is structured so that each chapter is a paradox. And basically what I came to was that part of why democracy is so frustrating, not this week, of course, it's going great. <laughs> um, but part of why democracy is so frustrating is because it is inherently paradoxical. So I make clear at the beginning that, you know, I'm not talking about... Um, Marxist contradiction. So I, you know, I say, you know, the rich and the poor is not one of the paradoxes that I highlight in the book. Because for me, I can imagine a democratic society where there isn't a battle between labor and capital. There aren't owners and workers, but where the, the gap between the rich and the poor is closed. But I cannot imagine a democratic society where we don't have to struggle with how to balance freedom and equality, coercion and choice, the present and the future, the local and the global, the fact that we can't know everything, so expertise and mass opinion, inclusion and exclusion, how do we decide who is making a decision so it's accountable? This book is me thinking through those paradoxes, right? In that sense, it's sort of like, well, this is why it's so fucking annoying to try to have democracy, because you're having to live in these tensions perpetually. And I think conditions of extreme economic inequality exacerbate those tensions. They make them even harder. 
right? Because then on it, the question of inclusion and exclusion, we're talking about you know, excluding people in order to exploit them, to keep that divide between the rich and the poor as gaping as possible, instead of thinking, okay, well, how you know, should the people who live in the building across the street have the right to decide the color of the walls in my building or something, right? They're excluded from that decision because it doesn't really matter to them. So these paradoxes are sort of the, the framework for thinking through the history of activism, of, of social movements, but also the history of political philosophy, and then a mix of reporting, some from the film and some beyond the film. You know, I find myself speaking to two different audiences. So I think one thing, if I'm speaking to sort of an audience of more liberally-minded people, both the film and the book are saying, uh, are trying to push back on the framework that's very common today, that is, our democracy is in crisis in the United States since 2016, since the election of Donald Trump. And I'm assuming it's similar here since Brexit. And, you know, what we need to do is restore what was happened before Trump was elected. So it's a kind of nostalgia for the Obama years. So instead of Trump's Make America Great Again, it's a kind of liberal, let's protect our liberal institutions and restore the democracy we used to have and go to brunch. And so the, both are pushing back and saying, you know, democracy doesn't exist. We've never had it. Even the sort of central democratic right of just the right to vote is not equally so many people are disenfranchised in the United States. <laughs> you know, we, ha we can't even achieve that. So let's not have nostalgia. Let's see democracy as a horizon and something that needs to be more robust and we can't separate econ the economic sphere from the political sphere. When I'm talking to my, you know, socialist comrades, my friends, I say, you know, let's not be smug. Even if we managed to create conditions of economic equality to transcend capitalism, that's when actually the democratic problems would get really, really interesting and challenging. So my slogan for a socialist future is better philosophical dilemmas. <laughs> Right? Because instead of the dumb debates we're having now, which is, you know, should three billionaires control half the wealth in the United States? Or are women equal to men? Are black people equal to white people? Should trans people be allowed to use the bathroom? Right? These are the debates we're stuck in now. We would have to talk about difficult things. You know, how do you value things? How do you share resources equally on a planet where there are ecological limits? What does it mean to have commonwealth and also have control over production. And those are really difficult questions that would involve, I think, wrestling right. with a lot of these paradoxes. So we would have, yeah, I think far more interesting democratic debates in a different uh, context. That's sort of where it ends. The book, I think what I also was excited to talk to David about is that I think you and I, I think there's a, there's a paradox I name, but it doesn't get a chapter. And that is, the fact that democracy fundamentally is this mix of theory and practice. Mm. It is both this ideal and it's this really messy reality. And, you know, this project, again, was born of being part of Occupy. And then uh, we were involved in a project called the Rolling Jubilee. Right. And then I co-founded something called the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors, which has been leading debt strikes and trying to intervene in the 2020 election. So it's, for me, is very much... All of this, all of these questions come from mm -hmm. practice. practice. Yeah. And that is, you know, I think also now what I'm diving back into, that I'm done with this exercise. But that's something I think you and I both really value. And I learned a lot. I read David's earlier books about direct action, which has a lot of accounts of meetings. Yeah. It's a whole chapter. <laughs> meetings. And it just, 
you know, even before the practice, before 2011, I was reading about social movements and, you know, one big takeaway was like, okay, it's always really fucked up, right? I mean, there's always struggles, personality conflicts, disappointments. Mm -hmm. And that's why when I went to Zuccotti Park the first time and I hated the drum circle, I was able to stick it out <laughs> because I knew the perfect, it's not a pizza, you know, the perfect, the perfect movement is not going to present itself for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember um, an ex-partner of mine, whenever I would talk about all the intrigues and this person hates this person, this person used to be seeing this person and I was like, and, and, and all this sort of drama going on in the average you know, direct action group, and would often say, well, you know, you're supposed to be creating prefigurative politics, yeah. supposed to be a model for society to come, you know, I mean, and just, how do you justify this, and um, what does it say about that? And I would always say, well, we're trying to build community. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're anthropologists, what's community like? I mean, community's always like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Everybody hates each other, but they also, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you think about it, um, it's it's funny because whenever they talk about um, consensus and coming to group decisions in a constructive way, often the objection is, well, you know, that's all very easy in a small community, but if you're in a large yeah. impersonal place where people don't have as much in common, you know, how would it really be possible? And I always say well, it's really the opposite, isn't it? I mean, if you live in, a, I mean, if you ever lived in a small village, you know, uh, in Chiapas or Madagascar or someplace like that, you know, you're going to a meeting, anybody who ever like beat you up as a child, yeah. anybody who ever like, you know, ran off with your girlfriend or boyfriend or, you know, is in the room. And you like that, right? Every time you have to make a decision, you still have to make a decision, but they do it somehow, you know, right. if they can do it, certainly we can. Well, it's funny because one of the, so one of the chapters is on the question of scale, which is an eternal kind of theme in political philosophy, right? And yeah. people get mm. sort of very dogmatic about this. Democracy can only work at the small level, only work at the larger level. And I guess I've had exactly that reaction. I didn't put it so anthropologically, but I was like, well, hold on. You know, I've been in so many small dysfunctional groups. It cannot be that small... Uh -huh. Is small the only is scale. Small is harder. Small can be yeah. really hard. Exactly. That's actually one of the things I'm working on, uh, doing a book of an archaeologist right now, David Wengro, where we're going over the history of, um, well, it started out as a book on the origins of social inequality, but it's gotten much broader. But one of the things we've noticed is that in a lot of ways, scale is exactly backwards. It's pretty easy to find examples of you know cities that operated by egalitarian decision-making. It's way harder to find households that operate that way. I mean, you can, but there, you know, it, it has happened. It's possible to do, but it's a lot more difficult. You know, mm -hmm. big groups, there's just, there aren't the same level of hatred and passion and love and, you know, mm -hmm. all that stuff that makes life complicated. Mm -hmm. And that was actually, I mean, that's famously what the Founding Fathers argued too, right, was mm -hmm. that, a certain, that in the United States that actually, contrary mm -hmm. to the people they were reading, that this, the vast scale would allow for conflicts to kind of disperse and for mm -hmm. the natural aristocracy to rise to the top. Well, there was that. Yes, there was that little problem. Mm -hmm. I don't, the thing I came to um, in that was that scale is actually kind of a strategy because you can't, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of conversation around this actually happening now about the Green New Deal. And people say to me, well, hold on, doesn't this challenge the idea of democracy? Because don't we need to enact the Green New Deal at this meta level? And my, my thing is always, well, 
it sounds like realism, right? That people will never change their minds and live in a green way. But also, well, who is this imaginary dictator that has the authority to impose the Green New Deal from the top down, right? Like somehow we have to build power it also, at a different... But I think that's why I came to this idea that it's scale. In other mm. words, because you have to make a sort of pragmatic determination based on where you are. Sometimes, you know, you see a path to change that might be at the state level, might be at the federal level. And sometimes you have to build power from below, but I really don't think you can say one is virtuous and then one is, you know, the scale of... You, you want it to be small if you can do it. Some things mm -hmm. you can't, but, um, mm -hmm. but I don't think doing it on a big scale is, is, is more difficult. Uh, I mean, there's ways to do that. Yeah, the other thing about those, you know, problems that people have with this, they imagine as when they think that people can't adjust themselves on, when you get on a larger scale... They have a model of, of, of democratic decision-making, which basically assumes nobody changes. Mm -hmm. People are these fixed interest groups that yes. have their, you know, their perspective, what they want, and then they all come together and negotiate together. Of course, that's going to be mediated by the relations of force on some level. Um, it's a very agonistic idea. And it never occurs to them that people, there could be a deliberative process through which people actually change their minds. Although anybody who's ever taken part in participatory decision-making means people do that all the time. There's actually a kind of a pleasure in changing your mind, you know, mm -hmm. that, that most people... There's various forms of political happiness that you experience when you do this sort of thing a lot, which are just inconceivable to people who haven't done it. It sounds like it would be a nightmare. But mm -hmm. sometimes it's just really fun to mm -hmm. like, oh... I don't have to think what I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why don't I try thinking yeah. something else? I'm always struck by how much you actually seem to enjoy being in meetings. Well, it I depends think, on which. But no, no, I know. But actually, <laughs> not, yeah. not, not, I've never been in an academic meeting with you. I'm oh, an academic. Oh, so um, <laughs> <laughs> But this, I mean, I have. I'm just picturing like we had meetings, you, you know, where we were in sleep, the yeah. the proverbial, <laughs> you know, church or community center <laughs> basement, like mm -hmm. plotting mm -hmm. the early days of the Rolling Jubilee. And I think this this idea of how you change the people. Mm -hmm has something that I'm seeing in a really, you know, astonishing way, look, I wish it was a much bigger, around the issue of student debt, student fees in the United States. Mm. Because this is now the position in the democratic debates that yes, some kind of student debt cancellation is gonna happen. So Sanders has come out with a platform that my group was part of the announcement saying all college should be free and all student debt should be canceled for everyone. Warren has come out with a plan that says basically all college should be free and your student debt should be canceled if you make under $200,000 a year. So a means-tested thing, which I'm very against. Mm. But it's, you know, I was had this moment maybe a month ago where I was reading The New Yorker and there's an article on student debt and it just said, well, obviously student debt cancellation is going to happen. Mm. It's completely realistic. Mm. I was just thinking about the early days of Occupy because we've actually gone back and sort of screen grabbed some of these things where they were just absolutely mocking us for raising this issue. Mm -hmm. And we have changed common sense. And so how we did that was, mm -hmm. so David and I were part of this thing called the Rolling Jubilee, where essentially we, this was 2011 into 2012. 12, or 2012. yeah, mostly 12. Yeah, yeah. where basically mm -hmm. we had this idea that we could act like debt collectors and mm -hmm. buy portfolios of debts on the secondary market but do something no one had ever done before, which is instead of collecting on it and tormenting people by harassing them. Just uh, forgive it. <laughs> just yeah. Do you know, do people it. know how this works? Because the way it works is that 
the bailiffs who collect your debts buy that, but they don't buy it for the full value. In fact, you know, if if you're if they mm -hmm. sell your credit card debt to a collector, they sell it for like five cents on the dollar, five p on the pound. You know, um, a, a huge markdown. Um, so actually, these guys are totally willing to write down ninety-five percent of the debt. They're just not willing to write it down to you. They want to keep the idea that you know. Debt is like permanent and immutable, but they they'll write it off, and then they send it to these guys who try to collect the whole thing. And if you know only ten percent get collected, they double their money, right? Yeah. So so that's the way the business works. But of course, it only works that way because people no, don't know that because nobody would pay off these guys if they know that like it's actually already been written off, right? Um, so what we did was we went out and we said, oh, when it was like Thomas Goki was yeah, the guy Thomas who Goki. really came up. Who is part of now is yeah. working full time for the debt collector. Is he good? Yeah. Good for yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, this brilliant guy who, you know, actually figured out the bureaucracy of how to do that. Yeah. Which is bureaucratically harder. You know, needless to say, they won't tell you whose debt it is when you buy it, or else yeah. everybody would just buy their own. Yeah. And there's only one country in the world where you can know it's Denmark. Oh, really? So if anybody's from Denmark, actually, you can buy back your own debt. Get it forgiven. Yeah, but we just buy up lots of debts and make a big show yeah. of forgiving it. And obviously, it was impossible logistically to do this on a level that it would yeah. really affect that many yeah. people. So, but but it was a great publicity stunt because it told people that this debt, they don't consider it sacred. They just want you to think yeah. about it. So I think this is, the question, though, of it scaling up is really interesting because so we bought mainly medical debt. Yeah. So the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is medical debt, people putting their emergency bills on their credit cards, et cetera. And then we bought also private probation debt, which is when you're in debt because you've been arrested. So mm. typically because you have poor people who are poor and you know overwhelmingly black people who have been driving without a taillight or right. maybe missed a court date or something mm -hmm. like that. And then you end up having debt through the criminal justice system, payday loans, et cetera. But we know, as David said, there's two things. So one, you can't scale this up. So what we always want to do is build debtor power. So this is the debt collective as a union for debtors. So ultimately, we started a student debt strike. Mm. People refusing to pay their loans and demanding not forgiveness because they did nothing wrong, but demanding abolition mm. of student loans. And we've won a billion and a half U.S. dollars of debt relief through that fight, which we began with 15 strikers. And now they are sort of pointed to, and the mechanisms we uncovered, the legal mechanisms, it gets very wonky, mm -hmm. are the ones being cited by the candidates for president in their proposals. I so this is, part, yeah. right, so that mm -hmm. is scaling up. But actually, Bernie Sanders has now announced a proposal to cancel all medical debt, and his proposal is literally to scale up the rolling jubilee. Really? Yes, which I cool. think is the wrong approach, though, because he would have the power of the state. So oh, what yeah. he should do is not think like an Occupy activist, but to think like a president, you know. Um, but nevertheless, the idea is essentially that the government would buy at a discounted rate all of the medical debt oh. um, that's in collections. So this is when I, you know, when you say you can change the people and what their assumptions are, mm -hmm. to, for me to watch this unfold since 2011 from being sort of scoffed at and told this is completely unreasonable to actually putting mm -hmm. over a billion dollars back into people's pockets and bringing... At least, you know, the younger generation who can't pay their loans back on side with this idea is a very powerful example of the people being transformed. Yeah. I mean, there no, is. You just got to get those evil baby boomers. You know, that's it's I mean. Gen X actually who's in the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I, you know, I think there is the. It, it's mentioned in my my film by the political philosopher Wendy Brown. She brings up Rousseau's paradox, which is this paradox of how do you create a democratic people out of an undemocratic people? Right, the founding paradox. Right. So I think part of it is through organizing, through mm -hmm. struggle, through. Uh, 
an experience that transforms. I think the flip of that paradox is just as operative in our society, which is how do you create an undemocratic people out of a democratic people? Uh. That's the challenge for the elites, right? They are investing a whole lot of energy. They. And they're doing quite well out <laughs> of the And they're doing quite well, but yeah. to make, <laughs> to disempower, mm. right? To disengage, to create circumstances of minority rule and to engineer an undemocratic people, a people that doesn't to, feel And to make people hate the idea of democracy. Yes. I mean, I mean, I think that's a real significance of Brexit. It's like, let's do like a directly democratic procedure in the worst way we possibly can. And like, you're never going to yeah. want to do it again. You want to make people hate yeah. democracy. Yeah. I mean, and, and anybody... You would be a really good evil genius, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I think the real evil geniuses of this were... Rome, ancient Rome, they came up with these amazing mechanisms for convincing people that democracy was bad. You know, mm -hmm. because they had a legacy of democracy in a lot of the places mm -hmm. they conquered. Um, and, you know, so in Athens, if everybody gets together to make a decision, it's in the Agora, you know, they're making, yeah. uh, so there's a whole idea of collective debate. And whereas in Rome, if everybody gets together to make a collective decision, it's like whether to cut a gladiator's head off, right? <laughs> so they basically yeah. organize people into these giant lynch mobs and then say to each other, is that what you want? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and it was a totally intentional, and it worked for two thousand years. You know that factionalism, which came out of chariot racing. You know, they they basically said to people, "Well, you see, you know, I mean, if you got people together, they turn into that. It'll be the Roman mm -hmm. circus." Mm -hmm. That's interesting because I mean, I think it's even to me. This is I think coming as an outsider into the realm of political philosophy. It's like, yeah, why all the emphasis on Rousseau's formulation and not the opposite, right? On all of the work that is done to de-democratize. Yeah. Right? Like, why shouldn't that be first? <laughs> mm. I mean, and I think this is sometimes the advantage of not being part of a discipline mm -hmm. is that, why well, is this the founding framework of right, you ask, your intellectual right? enterprise? Mm -hmm. I got my own realization from this partly, well, I'm an anthropologist, so I don't know anything about political theory. That helped. But also that I started thinking about these questions when I was in Madagascar, or actually when I came back from Madagascar. Mm -hmm. So whereas in, Ma in Madagascar, you know, sort of collective consensus-based decision-making is just sort of what people do. It's, there's no words for it or name for it. It's just assumed. Yeah. And it was only when I got back to America and uh, got involved in activist groups that were trying to reinvent this. And everything had to be painfully spelled out. And I realized that, you know, Americans have absolutely no conception how to do democracy. When was the last time I thought, well, you know, I was with a group of people, you know, over three people trying to make a decision without a leadership structure? Probably like when ordering a pizza, exactly. yeah, or or maybe when deciding what movie to go to. But other than consumption decisions, you never ever do that. It's. I mean, I absolutely found that. So going around with this film, I would, you know, I would try to find people who were sort of one or two steps removed from me who I thought would be interesting subjects. And I also interviewed philosophers who I had some sort of personal connection, like somehow I knew because I otherwise. I needed some sort of principle in order to figure out who the hell I was going to talk to because I could, in theory, talk to anyone. Americans could not answer the question, what is democracy? I mean, there's literally a scene in the film where this woman says, well, I mean, not a woman. I mean, she's a fresh college graduate, and she says, you know, democracy, isn't that when people tell you what to do? Which is kind <laughs> oh, of true, God, given yeah. the way our society runs. But it's, I mean, people would occasionally say democracy is freedom, and they would say democracy is elections. But what I really came to is that they don't have a profound or personal definition because it's not something they ever they do don't. in their lives. They don't but have democracy. But there's a sense that it's good or that, that it should be. It, you know, people should be free to make decisions yeah. together of, of yeah. you know, 
you know, on an equal basis about matters of common concern. They just have absolutely no idea what the mechanisms would be because they've never experienced yeah. them. Right, and even <laughs> people who really want to break that and to organize, I mean, I think I really felt this at Occupy. I was like, well, we don't know how to do it either. That's why this mm -hmm. is so dysfunctional, right? We're having to reinvent the wheel. There's no institutional memory. Yeah. And there are a few people who have been part of the global justice movement or some other movements yeah, that, that are giving us... Yeah, was trying to get yes. them in there. Even them, it was hard to get. Yeah, they were and saying, okay, we've made these mistakes before. Here <laughs> yeah. are some tips. Yeah. But I'm going to do a video series to make up for this. I'll okay, yeah. So I think that that is... <laughs> You know, that, that void um, was real. I mean, what was interesting for me, though, is that some people did know more about democracy than others. So it's edited this way in the film, so they're close to each other, but it was actually the very same afternoon as, you know, I was on the street and, again, talking to these kids who had gone to college and couldn't define democracy. But then I went and spoke to these middle school kids who are 12 to 14, and they're actually in the book and in the film, oh, yeah. um, in Overton, Miami, which is an area that used to be called Colored Town if not the poorest school district in the United States, and talk to these uh, mostly girls, but about whether they had democracy in the school. And they definitely knew what democracy was, and they knew they didn't have it. And their insight into the way their school is run, I mean, it was a very powerful interview in the sense that they, they also had a very astute analysis. They didn't say, well, my teachers are mean to me. Arbit you know, just arbitrarily. They were like, well, our teachers don't have power because it's the county, it's the mm -hmm. state, it's the federal government. You know, my parents don't have power in the workplace. Nobody wants to hear from people who are poor, who are black, who are, you know, they had a wisdom about democracy that was so in contrast to the more privileged, insulated, mm -hmm. you know, college-educated student a mile and a half away. So this, again, is... Some people don't even notice the lack of experience of democracy. And then for some people, that's very present and gives mm -hmm. them insight. Mm -hmm. well, one thing I realized when, I, when we started doing Occupy uh, about Americans was that, you know, people, collective or economic organization, people could do running a collective kitchen, dividing up. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, like, most Americans actually have a lot of experience of communism. Oh, yeah. David, yeah. Well, yeah, that is a great, <laughs> think, but that yeah. is a really beautiful essay. What's yeah. that essay called? I can't remember. It's called, I want right. to do, it's something uh, about uh, uh, how people join the military because they want me. Oh, Army of Altruists. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, Army uh, of Altruists. That's the one, right? I mentioned okay. that there. Okay. Yeah, because people have experience of communism. People have, you know, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs, cooperation on that basis. Everybody's done that. Even if you're in a workplace, if you're all working on a common task, you know, sort of do it according to communist principles because it works, you know. Um, but would you mean that if you say, pass me the screwdriver, I don't say for $5? Yeah, exactly. You know, okay. if I'm working for ExxonMobil and, mm -hmm. so, and I'm fixing a pipe, you know, like, like and I say, pass, pass the wrench. The guy doesn't say, yeah, what do I get for that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's assumed that you do from each according yeah. to their abilities to each according to their needs because it's effective. You know? So everybody knows how to do communism, but people didn't know how to do democracy. Mm -hmm. um, Americans are great at communism. They do it all the time. But, um, you yeah, know, when it came time to collective decision making, they're just totally at a loss for how you'd even start to go about it. Mm -hmm. And, and as I say, there's all these kind of, uh, I call it the ugly mirror phenomena. It's like the equivalent of the Roman circus. They create these institutions that are designed to 
reinforce the idea that individuals are inherently competitive and not cooperative and can't make decisions together. I mean, I always thought that the interstate highway system is basically about that. You know, the Nazis were really into building highways and getting everybody into cars. And, and around the same time America was. And it, you know, uh, you just behave, you're a different person when you're behind the wheel of a car than you are if you're on public transportation. And it mm -hmm. creates, you know, a different idea of social relations. It reinforces the notion that we're all these little competitive monads. Around. But I think this is, um, in terms of th structures that also create certain attitudes, I think debt is a big one. Oh, right? yeah. Um, oh, not yeah. only does it create a sort of attitude if you're deeply indebted. I mean, this is debt is something because it's been such mm. a big part of my life in organizing. And mm -hmm. it's just woven throughout the film and the book because it's actually a theme that is ancient. Right. right? These are, there are debt revolts long before... There's capitalism as we know it today. Oh yeah, most revolts um, in the ancient world, they basically all revolts were debt revolts, um, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Slaves revolt, revolt occasionally, but debtors all the time. I mean, the first demand is always like, cancel the debts. After that, maybe redistribute the land. Yeah, yeah. that's what we're gonna do next. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that, I mean, one thing it does is it also constrains so the hardest chapter to write was the one on scale, this question of scale, because I, I don't know. For me, I think it's a pretty, it's very, each chapter is intractable. This is not, mm -hmm. I also need to learn the lesson, which is if you really want to write a best-selling book, it's like seven lessons for life or something, <laughs> you know, eight easy fixes for democracy. It's not eight intractable paradoxes. But the, the one that was- The 10 rules of power. Yeah, yeah. the 10 rules of power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of that, the evil Canadian, my other fellow countryman. Yeah, he's the seven rules for life. Seven, I don't care anyway, how many of them were. Not be spoken Jordan about. Peterson, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> he's in rehab. Oh, is he? <laughs> yeah. Whoa, we talk later. Um, well, so, but I think the, the fun chapter to write was the one on time. Yeah. What is democracy's relationship to time? And this was one I really enjoyed. And thinking about debt, I mean, part of the problem of it is that it constrains the future. It's a claim on your future ending. I'm sorry, for future earnings. It's a way for people to extract more out of the present than there actually is. And thinking about the way capitalism functions and, you know, inherited wealth, accumulated wealth is the power of the past, mm. right? Creating this aristocracy of wealth. And the mm. debt is the many being constrained mm -hmm. over the long term. And the way that this transforms, you know, not only does it turn whatever social good into a commodity. Your education is now something you need a return on investment for, but then it also just con controls your mm -hmm. ability to engage in a democratic way because you are so concerned about keeping right. your head above water. Well, it's, it's like so much more than the highway system, at least as an image of freedom. But debt, I, I often think of it like, maybe that's what vampire movies are really about because um the thing about debt is that it turns you into one of them but but mm -hmm. not one of the cool ones right you know you have to be uh, you have to calculate you have to think like yeah. a capitalist you have to like think about how to turn anything into money because you're so in debt you just have to you're not you don't have the luxury of thinking about things in any other terms however you know so you have to be a capitalist but you don't have any capital you know yeah. so it's it's sort of like vampires or you know like like this endless uh, yeah mm -hmm. this endless need to like turn everything into getting more blood but like you don't even get to be like the cool master vampire with a castle. You get to be the like pathetic minion vampire, <laughs> you know, who still needs blood all the time but doesn't even get the good stuff. Yeah, yeah no, it does. I, I never thought of that. It's true. It does force you to, I mean, it forces yeah. you to think economically about yeah, everything exactly. yeah. that you're doing. But I thought there is also the, you know, um, 
the way debt has, I mean, going back between the ancient revolts and now our new debt mm-hmm. revolts, but thinking about um, mm-hmm. the way debt has also been used mm-hmm. in national context. I mean, the way that, mm-hmm. you know, the Haitian revolution, which is the first oh, God, revolution, yeah. that, you know, multi-racial <laughs> democratic revolution was totally suppressed. Not to mention the first successful slave revolt. Yeah. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. the first occasion where not only did slaves overthrow their masters, but they actually defeated Napoleon when he tried to send an army against them. I mean, you think this is one of the great vict- and and wrote this Enlightenment constitution. I mean, I think the highest ideals existed at the time. And, you know, it's, I always thought it was significant that no one ever thinks of this as a great Enlightenment event, mm-hmm. even though it was like terribly based on Rousseau and Voltaire. Yeah. But, you know, they just basically decided that um, the rest of the world was not going to let them get away with this or set an example. So they decided they had to pay for all the property they appropriated, including themselves, presumably, and compensate the slave owners. Uh, and I believe that Haiti, even the revolution was, when was it? It was... Uh, Eight. 1810 or they only finally repaid the debt in 1963 i mean they actually held them to it for the next 150 years you know uh it was and now you know people wonder why haiti's so poor basically everything got sucked out of that country to repay their former um, former plantation owners Mm -hmm. i mean it's like you know everything when you sort of follow the chains of capitalism that there's a a racial dimension that's even yeah. more extractive and violent. And so you see this, for example, when, mm-hmm. you know, enslaved people are freed after, mm-hmm. freed after the Civil War, but then forced into sharecropping. So this mm-hmm. way that debt has retur- recurred mm-hmm. as a, a tool. Right. So now it's the oppressed people who always seem to end up owing something to the guys yeah. who used to invade it and oppress them. Yes, because, yeah, cause, yeah <laughs> exactly. The only bailout in history, right, was the British. Oh, yeah, the British. Yeah. I, they're still paying back slave owners here. They haven't stopped. Yeah. <laughs> Do you all know this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah the only people who ever the, the the only people who ever got paid back for slavery were the British slave traders and slave owners. Slave yeah, owners. Yeah. Yes. Um, got after, full compensation. After the transnational slave trade was made illegal, and so that debt is still being paid. So banks get bailed out. Slave owners get bailed out. The people get sold out. Yeah. <laughs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Perfect point, I think, yes. to open it out. <laughs> Obviously, we're going to go to scale now. Um, huge issues, major mm-hmm. ideas, plenty <laughs> to get our teeth into, I think. Um, I also want to, well, I want to say to people that I've never asked a question in a live audience like this. I'm too shy. Yeah, me neither. So I want to encourage the shy people. <laughs> I'm just very interested about that debt uh, model. I've never heard about heard of it before. So, um, and and you, but you said that it wasn't sustainable. It wasn't scalable. In what sense? Oh, the rolling jubilee. Oh, I mean, in the sense that we would never. I mean, look, if Bernie Sanders comes in and uses the federal government's budget to mm-hmm. to force a deal with all medical debt and collections, that's, uh, you know, I think they figured out that you could actually, uh, you know, because it's reduced once it's in collections, it would be a few hundred million dollars. Right, to buy and erase all medical debt. But our idea is that you don't want a mechanism where you're buying all of these bad debts so that the system perpetuates, right? right. You want to try to get at its root. So people go into debt. The credit cards are typically used for necessities because they're not being paid enough, right? People have medical debt because there's not universal health care. People have student loans because there's not... Free there education. Is, there yeah. is a technical element. I mean, well, yeah. So, what was behind my question was just, just that my yeah. brain was just thinking. Yeah. Well, would it would it either be impossible or wrong for you to actually sort of like take that debt and and if people were able to pay back ten percent, right? Where it's just you've written written off at five, that you could actually keep five to make them. The, well, the, that was the, the idea. That's why oh, it's yeah. called the rolling jubilee. Uh, oh, I see. Right, that okay, was yeah. the idea of the rolling. Yeah, jubilee. It didn't and it actually, didn't work, it, well, no, we didn't. Yeah. Want, we didn't want to. <laughs> We always wanted to do it as a public education. So here's what happened is we didn't want to perpetuate it, right? We wanted to build a union where there was actually mm-hmm. collective power, collective bargaining. Um, and so, uh, but what some interesting things have happened with this mechanism we created. So for example, there are sometimes lawsuits against bad actors, abusive debt collectors. So we have used our mechanism as part of settlements, right? Your yeah. punishment is that you actually have to give all of these debts you're abusively collecting on. So we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars of right. debts that way. But I think we've always been wary of this idea of keeping it going. Well, well it's, we also, wanted... it's also really technically difficult, as it turned out. I mean, that is an, a factor. That was the impossible yeah. bit of my question. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, basically, it takes enormous amounts of legal paperwork to do this. It, no, it, I, it, I, have yeah. to say that's not, I have to say that's not actually really it. It's much, because it's all spreadsheets. It's just, you do have to get it. Everything's, mm-hmm. everything's mm-hmm. computers now. So, I mean, right. when you're buying, you're buying portfolios of pain, and it's literally like a doc. It's a word doc, mm. right? So, um, so the technical difficulties around the legal side, it's, it gets very long. It's, so there's something, debt cancellation can be considered income for tax purposes. So we didn't want to hit people with the tax bill. So that was some of the technical difficulty. Yeah, yeah, the but really, bill. it is something that we could have kept going, but our political agenda was that mm. we wanted to also create solidarity around the conditions of indebtedness and demand public goods. Demand. Right. It was a thing of beauty anyway. That's yeah, beautiful. thank you. Yeah. I mean, there was a sense that yeah. we were kind of hoping that maybe the church would take it. Oh, yeah, church, yeah. Yeah, church yeah. should go with it. That was, that was the idea that we had. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to spend the rest of our lives, like, you know, stamping debt forms. But we were a lot of religious bodies, which do have the actual facilities and to do economies yeah. of scale on that, could have done it. And we we're yeah. kind of hoping they would. Actually, yeah, and well, in one place that it's actually picking <laughs> yeah. up in the U.S. is that a lot of kids don't get lunch because they have school lunch debt. 
And so there are a lot of campaigns to buy and abolish school lunch that, but it's also something like that shouldn't fucking exist. You know, if somebody, if a kid is too poor to have lunch, you give them fucking lunch. (laughs) You know, a bigger obstacle to our project Mm. is also eliminating the shame that comes with these debts. Right. And that is something that has been a struggle, but I think people have actually been more eager to get rid of, you know, Mm. because like getting rid of your shame is great. It's like off your back. It's not your fault. But shame is a big part of how. Yeah, this power. was one of our earlier things. The Invisible Army, the Invisible yeah. Army, it became this realization that, on the one hand, we, that there was an initial attempt to get people to sign a pledge saying, if we get up to this number of signatures, everyone will default, and people didn't really want to sign it. And then we realized that one reason why people didn't want to sign documents, I think we were doing student yeah. at, was because so many people were already in default or thought they were about to be already in default, and the yeah. last thing they wanted was a document saying, <laughs> yeah. "Me, it was me, I was, and it was political," you know. So, so we realized, oh, you know, well, if the way. You know, if you think we're dominated by finance capital, how do you pri- exactly. how do you practice civil disobedience against finance capital? Well, finance is just other people's debts, right? That's all it really is. Um, so you just don't pay your debts. So, well, we suddenly realize that most people in America, at least, are already practicing civil disobedience against finance <laughs> yeah. capital yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. one form or another. Yeah. <laughs> Except nobody knows the other ones are doing it. They're all ashamed to yeah. admit it. So, you know, so we came up to say the invisible army of defaulters, you know, yeah. and come came up with a manual for how to default. Yeah. And so forth and so on. Yeah. But my question was, um, if we don't have democracy, what would you say we do have? And and, and then I'm using the word we. Who are we? Are we talking about which country we're talking about doesn't have democracy? Nowhere, ever? Mm-hmm. I would say, um, I mean, I'll speak. I live in New York, so I'll speak. I mean, I would say we have, or we have an oligarchy, you know, not a democracy. But yeah, I'm specifically, I mean, my, I'm, I'm Canadian-American, so for me, those are the main focuses. And of course, we're influenced by the British tradition. But where, I don't, you know, people have said, you know, why don't you point to the Scandinavian models more? And, you know, there's not... Switzerland. I, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. but no, I'm, you know, I think different, I think democracy is not something you have or you don't. It's not a binary thing. Yeah. Right? Exactly. There's a, you know... David has a book called The Democracy Project. So that was, I think, very rightly the emphasis on the doing, the practice. But it's something that things can be democratized. They can be de-democratized. We can move forward in one respect and move backwards in others. You know, we've made progress in civil rights and women's equality while making, you know, hor- well, well, inequality, economic inequality has grown massively. So I don't see it as we have it or we don't, which is what the title is trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and and. There are places which have where certain forms of decision making are traditionally done through democratic means. As I was saying about Madagascar, you know, I mean, consensus process is just what you do if you have 20 people and you have to figure out what to do. And everybody just does that. And they don't think of it as anything. In fact, um, if they, uh, it's just normal behavior. Um, so there's places where sort of democratic practices and sensibilities are normalized and other places where the opposite is normalized. It's also often the case in totally different contexts. So yeah. if you go to Bali, one of the most hierarchical societies, everybody has, you know, caste ranking. However, when it comes to actual decision making in terms of like cleaning the streets or putting on a play, you know, they have a tradition where everybody sits in a circle and operate by pure egalitarian uh, decision making. Uh, 
except, you know, of course, the high and mighty people won't sit in a circle with everybody else. So they have to pay a fine for non-attendance. And that's oh, really? how they pay for the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very often the case that there's like totally egalitarian democratic principles in one context yep. and exactly the opposite in another one. Yeah. I was wondering how do you think about representative versus direct democracy? Um, I always thought that representative democracy is a way of uh, ensuring that complicated policies are kind of not self-conflicting or kind of are kind of a cons um, conflict resolution in policy. So if I have to make a very complicated policy and then a single person, a representative, can make consistent policies, And so it's easier to make difficult decisions that are not self-contradictory. Mm. Um, but now if, uh, if there's an irrational representative, that person, of course, can then act very irrationally and this uh, advantage goes away. Do you think there's still some kind of advantage of uh, representative elements of democracy or should everything be very bottom-up, very direct? Um, so I don't think everything should be very bottom-up and direct. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, because I don't think, how does that scale to a world where there's over 7 billion people? It's interesting because I don't, you know... The question is how many decisions have to be made yep. on that level. Well, and how do you I make... I none are made that way now. Right, and how, right. <laughs> a lot more decisions could yeah. be made on that level, right? Because I think that it's important in terms of it being the sort of education you get in democracy. And there are, I think, this, que this question of context. Like, for example, mm. in my film, it's another thing that lives in both, but I... There's one textile factory left in Appalachia, right? And it's in the film... And it's a cooperative. It's a cooperatively run factory. So that means it's still there because it, it's owned by the workers. So, of course, they don't want to sell their jobs overseas, right? They don't want to outsource their own jobs. But they all happen to be Mayan, indigenous, who are living in, in Guatemala. Appalachia. Yeah, because they escaped the Civil War, um, right? So that is which the United States was involved in. But so they have this, like you're saying, a sort of cultural tradition of doing direct democracy. And they run the factory, that way. And it works really well. It's at a scale where it can run. I mean, to me, I think the question is, well, how do we make representative democracies more accountable? Rep you know, this is, it's not that there's just a pure model of representation and a pure model of direct democracy. You know, it's thinking about accountability. I mean, you know, and so one interesting idea, and it's coming out more, I think, as people talk about citizens assemblies, but it's like mm. randomly selecting citizens. You know, the question of sortition, I mean, to the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, you know, democracy was selection by lot. Elections were aristocratic because charismatic, wily, well-connected, rich people, men, reality mm -hmm. TV stars, mm -hmm. you know, would win these elections. And so they just, they didn't think elections were democratic. And so you can have representation with other things beyond like the, yeah. the system of electoral politics we have now. So I think those, those are, again, the interesting democratic questions we need to be asking. Like, okay, what would accountable representation look like? What incentives do people have To run, I mean, my opinion is basically if you're eager to run as an elected official, like you should be immediately disqualified. <laughs> right. That, that one, right. That was one thing Plato got right. Yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, totally if you right want it, that. you can't yeah. have it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and about sortition, that's it, it. Shows how the word democracy has has morphed, and this is something I always yeah. talk about. It's important to remember that um, you know democracy used to be a word sort of like anarchy. Yeah. You know, it was like that which we don't want. It would be the Roman circus. It would be terrible. And it's really only, and even, you know, when I want to annoy Americans, I always point out that nowhere in the Declaration of Independence or in the Constitution does it say anything about America being a democracy. You know, those guys hated democracy. They said so all the time. You know, the opening speech at the Constitutional Convention is, what are we going to do? There's a danger of democracy breaking out. We must defend yeah. it. <laughs> it yeah. is totally explicit.
So you basically you have this system that was created to prevent and, and contain the danger of democracy. And they get relabeled democracy because people start calling themselves Democrats and winning elections in the 1830s, both in France and in America, and eventually here. Um, so they relabel all these institutions designed to stop democracy as democracy. But at the same time, you have all these flips like sortition and representation. Representation, you know, like they I have found out. I just found out that there was one yeah. American founding father who who's proposed sortition. Oh yeah, who's that? I can't remember his name. Well, he but, was also the one who was against there being age limits for representatives. So ah, um, uh, well, this is yeah. another interesting thing that nobody talks about when they talk about democracy and elections. You know, they had elections. When did there were the first elections in, in England? Like twelve hundreds, you know, no, never occurred to anybody in medieval England that this had anything to do with democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, democracy was a thing which nobody would ever stand for; it. everybody hated. Elections was the aristocratic way. You know, which of aristo means the best? Which of these nobles is the best one? You know, you get peasants get to decide, or not the rich peasants. So that idea of you know, of Genghis Khan, you know, like had the people decide which. Lord, they wanted to follow their banner of, you know. I mean, so so that's why his armies were so effective. It wasn't by genealogy. It was by, but they were still lords and the followers, you know, like that, that kind of aristocratic model is essentially the model we were talking about. We talk about representative democracy. There's this clever flip they some people did in like the late 18th century and early 19th century and said, no, representation is democracy, which is mm-hmm. a completely unfamiliar notion to people at the time. Yeah. Now it's like it doesn't occur to people that it wouldn't yeah. be otherwise. I think the big thing for me for representation is like if you could just get rid of the possibility of profiting from politics, right? I mean, right now, you know, bribery is basically legal. Yeah. And getting more and more legal. I mean, the last, there was a big court case, Supreme Court case, and it was like, you know, if the lobbyist gives your partner a fancy white coat and, you know, like literally stuff. You know, is it legal? And yeah. they're like, yes, that's fine. As long as the quid pro quo isn't actually right, yeah, written down. Yeah, in um, America, like, <laughs> always comes out last on the uh, corruption index. Of yeah. inter- and that's because it's almost impossible to do something that would be counted yeah. as corrupt in America. Because <laughs> <laughs> bribery is yeah. legal. Bribery is legal. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just had a question about, yeah. we talk about direct democracy <laughs> and um, representative democracy. There's something in between, and I think a lot of democracies, at least in Europe, are sort of experimenting with, I know in the Netherlands, for example, at municipal level, they have a lot more sort of participatory um, democracy. Uh, and actually they found that it is not very successful because it's a particular social economic class of people yeah. that comes to these events and, and talk. And it's people that have the educated, uh, educational background, they have yeah. the time and, and have the financial position yeah. to do so. Yeah. And so actually that's a problem of the democracy as well, that it invites and allows, and this is going back to the Greeks as well, where it's particular kinds of people who are allowed to participate and and how would you be able to overcome that problem of mm-hmm. um you know how they solved that in greece mm-hmm. they actually did have a solution to that in greece you, you know what it was you pay the pay, they paid them. pay the poor to participate they actually paid yeah. people to show to the up to the agora yeah yeah i mean i think there's you know this was also one of the things about you know these lessons you know are at, in different cases like this was a problem with occupy right the assemblies were open and con, you know considered by some adherents to be the pinnacle of direct democracy but you know who could go after work only people who didn't have kids and who had time to listen to people talk all evening mm-hmm. and so yeah i think this is why these experiments in sort you know in randomly selecting not but not totally random but trying to create randomly su- selected but representative groups of citizens right so that there's the age range geography ability racial background and all of these things. So it's random and representative. I mean, you know, the one thing I think about the Greeks is that 
They did a lot considering they just had like marble and bronze, right? I mean, in this moment, it's just one of these things where you're like, we have a lot of technological advantages. Like we want to figure out how to encourage citizens of municipalities to participate in a way that's representative. You'd think we could figure it out yeah. <laughs> in some way. But I think the class thing is key. It's like, why is an election day a federal holiday where everybody gets mm-hmm. a fucking you know, stipend? Yeah. Why, or why can't you do it online for free in two seconds? You know, there's one moment in the film, liberals, sorry, not to just tarnish everyone, but it was like, why don't people vote? You know, how can people stay home? As though the right to vote is really sacred in the United States. You know, it's not something that's even enshrined in the Constitution. The idea of one person, one vote is not an American idea. It came from the trade union movement and also from the ANC, from South African Marxists, mm-hmm. right? This phrase, one man, one vote, was spoken at the, the civil rights famous march on Washington, mm-hmm because it was being spoken in South Africa, right? So this, this sanctimony around voting really irritates me. And so there's a scene in the film where I'm talking to these two young guys and they're like, yeah, we don't vote. But as I talked to them more, it turned out they don't vote because they really, they were probably in their, they're probably, you know, 12 or 13 when 2000 happened. They lived in Florida actually, when basically the 2000 election went to George W. Bush and not Gore because of some hanging chads, they were called, but just some missing pieces of paper on some ballots and the Supreme Court, five people decided who the presidency went to. And so their cynicism was actually informed, right? It wasn't out of apathy. It was, it was a real cynicism. I think we have to talk to that. We have to speak to that, that there's something, there's something real there when people feel left out of politics. And um, instead of, yeah, instead of acting very sanctimonious about it, as though we've ever enacted the sacred right in some perfect way. Some people I know from Occupy Athens had a great proposal. They pointed out that the, the, the percentages of people voting in Greece keep going down. And there is a place where you can't say it's because they're complacent. You know, it's a bit right, of a no, total it's... crisis, right? Uh, yet it still goes down. So they said that their proposal was that anybody who's registered for, to vote but doesn't vote will have to be considered to be voting against the representative system. So that proportion of seats has to be filled by sortition. Oh, I, li- I yeah. like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> I vote for that. <laughs> I have a question. I wonder whether any of you came across this democratic problem that we have now in Brazil, where we're from, ah. uh, which is complicated in many, many, many ways. Oh, God, yeah. But um, <laughs> apart from the matters of you know the colonial kind of reverberations about the influence of the united states and other mm-hmm. kind of you know global capitalist companies in what's going on now we have an internal question of uh, fundamentalist christians mm-hmm. yeah and they're very kind of pro like for profit fundamentalist christian mm-hmm. churches they, they're influencing yeah. direct democracy so like voting and representation in all scales a lot so what we have, it's kind of, it's almost like this angst of democracy because you think, oh my God, if we vote mm-hmm. as Brazilians, mm-hmm. you know, 200 million, we're probably not going to make any good decision, you know, this, and it's probably going to be terrible actually for everyone mm-hmm. because of this, this type of fundamentalist Christian uh, influence in politics now. So I'm wondering whether you came across questions like this, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think the, the thing is, you have to be real that there, there is, this is the thing, democracy is risky, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is always that risk of the majority. This is why there's fear of the tyranny of the majority, and there's no guarantee that people will, it's not like you can say, oh, democracy is just people voting how I want them to vote in some enlightened way. 
I didn't know that about this Christian right, but that certainly resonates with the U.S. and the moral majority and the evangelical yeah. churches and all of that. I mean, I've grappled with that, and I don't, I don't know that I have an easy answer to that. I mean, I think the thing is that sometimes, you know, this is why there is the liberal tradition and protection of minority rights, and and that that can't be discounted. But I think this is when it comes down to. Yeah, trying to transform, trying to either bring people who don't agree with that into mm. politics and make people feel that they can try to hold the line and fight back. I mean, it's it's ultimately trying to change the demos and change people's minds. So that's not the majority mm. view. Yeah, I mean, it also has to do with the forms in which democracy takes place. I mean, this is why I always the, the go back to Brexit as the example of the, you know, if they're trying to make people hate democracy, this is how you do it. Uh, first of all, you know, if if... Any democratic organizer I know who's done a lot of directly democratic stuff knows that if you get a 5149 or a 5248 result, you ask the question wrong, you didn't get an answer, you try again, you know, and you come up with something that at least two thirds of people can live with. So if you come up with something that like 51% want and like 49% hate, well, no, that's not a decision, you know. Increasingly, the, what what is happening is, you know, for, and the other thing is plebiscites. I would say, you know, if you're really being democratic, you would not do it unless it's totally necessary. Dictators love plebiscites, you know. I mean, that's a, that's not really a democratic form. A democratic form involves like deliberation and decentralization as much as possible. So when you have a situation where you have these sort of carefully designed wedge issues, which are, um, you know. PR firms come up with to split the vote as close as possible and then try to build it or the campaign around that rather than around bread and butter issues that most people actually care about. I mean, there's an art to this, and, and that can be done when you have these very large-scale uh, votes. Yeah, you can make democracy look really bad, but it does, and, and then people think it's democracy that looks really bad rather than you know the entire framework, which was designed to be as undemocratic as possible. And, I mean, you know. the evangelical right t- yeah. did really transform American politics, and I think to me this, you know, this is also where, it, and partly because they're disciplined. Right. I mean, they have a hierarchical, I, patriarchal model, like the man's the boss and God's the boss of him, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's just sometimes to me, one thing in the way I want to transform my side or the left is to say, you know, discipline's not domination. Also, we need some discipline in our, to counteract people who are that well organized because I'm at least, yeah, in the U.S. example, it's such a transformative force in politics because they were able to actually act collectively. Right. But also, yeah. you know, they can act collectively. There aren't that many of I mean, there are a but lot. But maybe in Brazil, I don't know. No, yeah, you're there. I mean, what, what percentages are we talking? Well, I'm saying like the electorate. What you usually find is they're not that yeah. much of the population. They have a totally disproportionate. Um, thanks for the talk. It was yeah. t- terrific. Um, I was wondering, I don't really have a punchy question, but maybe I was hoping to solicit your thoughts on, um, on technology. It seems somehow mm-hmm. to affect the question of scalability of democracy. Yeah. I imagine lots of ways. So I wondered if you had any reflections on that to share. Um, particular around, you know, the concern, policy concerns around disinformation, for instance, is kind yeah. of a hot topic. Um, the tech question, it's interesting because I had written the People's Platform before come out of that. So I think we have to be careful with technology. And this is what I say. I think both, both of my projects have the same sort of framework, which is there's a tendency to get swept away by change instead of looking at continuity. So for me, the question with the digital revolution was actually, what actually hasn't had a revolution. 
What's had an evolution? What's carried over? So yes, we all have computers in our pockets and we can speak to each other, but the dominant business model is advertising, which in, you know, was the dominant business model of television, print media. And in fact, what's happened is that that dominant model of advertising has metastasized and been further empowered because now it can track you all the time. It can track you as you read. You know, another thing that carried over, so I say in the book that consolidation, centralization, and commercialization have all carried over and that we've, we've paid too much attention to novelty and by not looking at those continuities, mm -hmm. we're not really grappling with the situation we're in. So these are part of the uh, democratic problems of the technological space. But in this project, you know, technology is now, it's not some separate thing. Like even, I, don't, I feel like we have to start integrating it into whatever area we're looking at. So in the book, you know, in each chapter, I'll sort of talk about the technological implications. You know, in terms of thinking about the question of scale, now so many of these companies are multinational. We're all using Facebook, which is sucking revenue back to Silicon Valley, to Mark Zuckerberg, who has really revealed his true colors in the last couple of weeks mm -hmm. and is rejecting even the tiniest bit of regulation. And, you know, t I just learned from my friend Anasuya here, telling his employees how to vote and who not really? to vote for, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, Elizabeth Warren would not be good for Facebook. Mm -hmm. So I think what, what I tried to do in this was to show that you know, there's a techn technological dimension to all of these, these dilemmas. I think it's quite interesting, too, to think about the way that democratic identity was famously formed through print culture, mm. right? Imagine communities, right? The classic investigation of how print culture created a kind of subjectivity and national identity. But now we're being sort of deterritorialized through our online selves and you know, I have more in common with someone in London than, you know, someone who lives half a mile from me. So I think there are, there are these intersections that are really interesting, but, I, but for me it's fundamentally is these things of continuity, right? The commercialization of the internet is the problem. It's not the technology. You know, it's the fact that it's a global ex machine of wealth extraction and that that wealth is in a very colonial fashion going back to a handful of uh, billionaires who are soon going to be trillionaires which is just what they need to get them over the edge so they can go to outer space and leave us alone. <laughs> and then the, the book will have a happy ending. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> no. Well, if they upload themselves. Actually, one of the most encouraging things I, I read um, was that someone was pointing out if, if machines do become self-conscious, you know, decide to look after their own self-interest, rather than enslaving us and turning into Skynet, the actual most rational thing for an intelligent like um, system of robotic artificial intelligence to do would be to leave the Earth entirely and go to outer space. Space, because they wouldn't rust. You know? <laughs> Earth is a really stupid environment for a machine. It's wet. <laughs> um, many thanks indeed to all of you for coming, for everyone at the LRB shop for making it possible. Please do now thank, with enormous and renewed enthusiasm, Astra Taylor and David Graeber. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.